Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, friends, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, so thank you guys again for being here. It's the last night of this class, just in case you didn't know that. So if you come next week, it's spring break. There's not going to be anyone here. But um, the week after that, we are going to be starting. <laughs> yeah, the week after that, we are going to be starting a class that goes through the book of Philippians. And Drake Holderman's going to be teaching that. So if you do want to come back, if you have kids here still and you want to keep uh, just looking at the Word of God, that will be good. It'll be in this room, and it will start the week after spring break, so the week after next. Um, so you're welcome to come and do that. Um, but at least for tonight, we're going to conclude our our survey of the Bible and theology just by trying to ask good questions about everything that we've talked about thus far. And so thankful for Michael and Mark just to come, and you can pick their brains a little bit because they're smarter than me, and then hopefully um, you can at least have some answers to... Uh, to, to, to some of the questions that you may have that I that I couldn't answer or that I didn't answer. So either way, um, I have a list of the questions that you asked that you put in the box, but I don't want to just be contained to that list. Now, of course, we only have till eight o'clock, right? But if, uh, if a question comes up, please just raise your hand and we'd love to try to tackle that if possible. We'd, we're not promising we're, that we'll have an answer, uh, but... I'm promising you that Michael will attempt one. So <laughs> That's probably <either> fair. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so if you guys have questions, That's let us know. Funny, but at least uh, before, we, before we get started, I want to pray. So let's pray. Father God, you are holy and good. And Father, you are far beyond our comprehension. And yet, Lord, you reveal yourself to us in ways that still bring us a joy and love and a life that, uh, Father, we're so grateful for. And we pray, God, that tonight would just be one more moment of sitting at your feet, um, not because we really have, have some exceptional knowledge or secret intellect, Father, but simply because uh, we love your word and, and the only reason that we're here is because we want to share it, share the thing and the, really you, Father, to share you and your heart. And God, we just pray that you would bless this night and the process and that you wouldn't let anyone feel... Um, that any question's too big, but also that any person's too small to ask one, Father, uh, that we're all here to humbly learn and have a conversation together. It's not about um, anything else other than us all becoming more like you. We pray that that happens tonight. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, I'll just kind of start us off with our first question. And like I said, if if, you, if questions do come up, write them down, keep asking them. We'd love to, to again, just try to tackle as many as we possibly can um, for, for everybody. And like I said, don't feel like you're just, you're asking experts, okay? Uh, we love the Bible, and so we might be able to share, shed light on parts that maybe you've never thought of, but the truth is we really just want you to fall in love with the same God that we've come to know and, and serve. So tonight I'll start with this question because I think it's probably um, the one that we should think about and dwell on the most probably is what will the new heavens and earth be like? So Mark, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send that to you. What will the heaven, new heavens and new earth look like? Okay, there's a caveat though before we begin. Uh, he said we're smarter than him. I'm not sure many people are smarter than Elijah. I just think I'm wiser, and let me explain. I would not try to cover 
the Trinity, what heaven's like, what hell's like. In let's just have to minutes, minutes, okay? So let's differentiate for you. Okay. What, uh, I'm going to go back to when I first got here, I think the spring of 2010, we did a series on uh, heaven and hell, death and dying. And it was just talking about what the Bible teaches. And I remember sitting over in the Student Ministry Center North, and we had a panel like this, and it was Randy Garris and Mark Scott and Chad Ragsdale and, and I, myself, and I'm trying to think there was five of us. But anyway, the question was posed, and we threw it to Chad Ragsdale. And I always used his answer as he began. He said, before we answer anything about heaven and hell, we have to imagine God sitting in heaven going, isn't that cute? And they're describing something I spoke very little of. Okay, so when you wonder what the new heaven and hell, it's not a bad question. But please understand, the biblical support for what it's going to be like is very, very tiny. For a reason. Because I don't believe that God intends us to spend our time thinking about one day we are going to be when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is now. Uh, What I believe, and I'm going to ask these guys to support or disagree on this, uh, what I believe the scripture teaches is that it's not going to be a faraway place up in the ether. That he is going to... He did the earth for a reason. I believe he's going to bring heaven and earth back together again in this place like the Garden of Eden was. So what you can imagine is that the new heaven and the new earth is going to be a whole lot like the Garden of Eden because it begins in a garden in Genesis. It ends in a garden in Revelation. I think we're giving some clues there. So there's many things I just want to encourage your heart with. Instead of being disappointed that you don't know all the details, you obviously don't need the details. What you need to know is the truth that God is going to provide a place for us as beautiful as what he started us in. Every tear is going to be wiped away. There's going to be this freedom and peace and unity. We're going to have walking with God and living in the presence of God. And one of the questions that I most commonly ask, I'm not making this up, about the new heaven and earth is, will there be pets? Mm -hmm. And and we we can scoff or roll our eyes at that, but I don't think we ought to. Because, you know, we know there'll be no cats in heaven. That's clear. I mean, it's perfectly clear. But do you enjoy your pets? Are they a blessing? Are they a gift? Were they a part of the original garden? Yeah, so I think so. Some of the bigger questions you're going to ask is, will I know my loved ones? Will they know me? How old will my grandpa be when I see him again? I can't answer any of those questions. Emotionally and sentimentally, I want to answer them. But the truth of Scripture is God is going to give us a garden experience unlike anything that we will ever fathom. Even the picture in Revelation of the new heaven and earth coming together is such a thing of beauty that there's not enough descriptors to describe it. I hope that doesn't frustrate who asked the question. But I want to encourage you to hold on to what the new heaven and earth mean to us and don't get caught up in the details and, and be disappointed because you don't know because he talked very little about it in scripture, I think, for a reason. Yeah, I mean, that's good. I like that. And I, I would just say anything that we think that we would need, you know, in the new heavens and new earth, like really is ultimately going to end in God, you know? And so whatever else God wants to provide for us will continue to be a blessing and far more than we deserve, but, but, our, but the ways in which we enjoy God will bring completeness and satisfaction to every other area of our life, um, regardless of what we know or don't know of what will be there and what won't be. Uh, but I honestly like to speculate that there will be a lot of things, what, far more than we probably anticipate, even in terms of technology. And I don't mean like necessarily digitally, although that probably too, but I think we'll still be creative beings, you know, enjoying the work of, of our brains and our hands and the, and the creativity God has given us. So. And probably one last thing, just to put in your mind, to think in your heart. When it says we're going to worship, what's the running joke? I don't want to be eternity in a worship service. I'm a preacher. I don't either. 
If you define worship so narrowly that it's what we do on Sunday mornings, you've, I think you misunderstood the biblical concept of worship, which means in nature, with our friends, over a good meal, we're going to understand who God is and what he's provided. It's going to be this flow out of us to a love of God by knowing him so richly and deeply. That's what worship should be, not an event on a Sunday morning that's limited to one person talking. And so a lot of people get discouraged thinking if they're honest, I really don't want to go to an eternal worship service. Who does? But if you live every day in worship, you're going to understand what he's saying, the fulfillment that's going to be found in being in the presence of God and others safely and lovingly. It's going to be, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches us, I believe. Yeah, so dream big. You know, Carson, my son's eight. He asked me this question recently, and I gave him a big, long answer. And at the end of it, he's like, so you don't really know either. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but just dream big, okay, buddy? Dream big. Okay, well, <laughs> well, on the concept of, obviously, just heaven, uh, the new earth, we got a question. Can a God-loving, God-fearing Jew who follows Old Testament laws but does not feel Jesus is the Son of God, will they go to heaven? Michael, how would you answer that? Yeah. That's, a, so that's a really hard question, and it's connected to a, a, a number of similar really hard questions. I'm not going to try to answer all of them. I'll just answer this one. Um, the short answer, I would say, is no, but, but please let me under, explain it a little bit or unpack it a little bit. I think it's important to acknowledge some of the assumptions that are built into the questions we ask. Because we might ask a question that assumes things we don't actually believe, but the question sort of implies that it's the case. So who is in heaven and who is not in heaven is not a question of like who's good and who's evil. I know there are going to be evil people in heaven because I plan on being there. You know what I'm saying? There are going to be people who are not totally obedient to God, who are not always faithful in worship and all these various things. So it's not a question of have some people done enough, whereas others have not done enough. Salvation really is the offering of a free gift to all who receive it in faith. So there's a sense in which it's very much a gracious offer, but faith is the single most demanding thing one could expect because it requires that I entrust myself, and that's a scary thing, that I take what God is saying is true even if I can't fathom how it could be true, that I commit myself to a certain way even if that way makes no sense. And as much as you know, a, person, a Jewish person in the context that's being described is certainly being faithful to the laws, um, of course, I, once again, I maybe should have started by God can save whoever he wants. But as I understand the scriptures, if you're saying no to Jesus as Messiah and Lord, you don't get to the quote unquote gates and say, but look how well I kept the laws. I would imagine the conversation will go something like the conversation Jesus had with another really good law keeper who came to Jesus and said, hey, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a Jewish man. And Jesus said, you guys probably know the story. You know the commands. And then he laid out the commands. All these I've kept since I was a boy. This is the person we're talking about. And Jesus said, well, except there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, this story is about economics, but it's also, I think, legitimately about the condition of this person's heart. And I don't say that to soften the blow, but, but it really is a question of, at, at core, are you willing to surrender everything? to God as revealed in Jesus. And in this particular case, the man's, the man's um, answer was no. And I love how the question is answered with, could a loving God? Because what's fascinating about that story that, of the rich young ruler is that at least in the gospel of Mark, Mark's version is the one I'm most familiar with. It, there's only, it is the only time in the gospel of Mark that Mark tells us Jesus loved someone. And it happens at the point in the story when Jesus looks at the man and loved him and then told him, one thing you lack, do all these things. And then the text says, and then the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. So Jesus' love for him was demonstrated in clarifying the demand and allowing him to walk away if he so choose, chose. 
So that may sound like a harsh answer. And again, I'm not saying everything that could be said, but I think the answer to the question is um, no, not because God is not loving, but because here we have a person and we're assuming that they've heard the gospel of Jesus and said no, who has rejected God's ultimate revelation. Is that a fair way of framing it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think probably we were aware of discussing this question beforehand. There's probably an underlying presumption that it's a Jewish person, meaning that are the Jews going to be allowed into heaven because they're Jewish? And uh, I think the book of Romans teaches pretty clearly the answer to that is no, it's faith in Jesus. Yeah. It's going to be Jew and Gentile and not based on ethnicity. It's going to be based on who you find Jesus to be and your trust in him. Yeah. Romans 9-11 is really confusing, but 9-6 is a key verse. Not all who descend from Israel are Israel. And what he's saying there is just that. Not all who are ethnically Israel right. are therefore members of the people of God. Jesus is the turning point. Well, I think a big reason for that is um, ultimately because of the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit changes our, the category of who we are fundamentally, uh, which comes through the work of Christ um, and ultimately our faith in him. So a new question we got, which um, I want to make sure to ask is, when do you guys think the Holy Spirit comes? So does it come when somebody professes faith? Does it come at baptism? Uh, this is uh, one that we got tonight, and I was like, that's a good question. I'm going to throw it to you guys and see what you think. I, I would always answer that question with a question. At what point were you and Macy married? Because it's not an easy, as easy of a question as it might seem. There's a number of moments that were important for the process that we're describing. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think about, you know, was it when you said, I do? Was it when you exchanged rings? Was it the kiss? Was it the signing of the documents? Was it the consummation? Was it the filing of the documents? When was it? And the answer is yes, you know. And it's not exactly the same thing because the question is about a very specific thing taking place, the Holy Spirit entering the life of a person. But I don't think that, the, similar to how I don't think that the Scriptures satisfy our curiosity with respect to what heaven will be like, I don't see in the Scriptures a detailed, precise satisfaction of our curiosity with respect to this question. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things the book of Acts teaches us and the way it depicts the movement of the Spirit, which like follows a certain pattern and then whoop, there's a surprise. Part of the point is the Spirit works by patterns but not formulas. So you can know the kinds of things the Spirit's gonna do but be careful assuming you've got it in a box. Now having said that, if you press me on it, I would say the point of faith. Mm -hmm. um, but that's itself kind of maybe begging the question. Mm -hmm. But that's how, that's how I'd answer it. So you're answering my question of the question <laughs> with a question? Nice. I like that. Um, how could the Holy Spirit enter a person without Christ being present? Well, I would say there is, there's no, so whatever you understand about the Trinity, and I'm sure Elijah taught you really well about it, there is no such thing as the Spirit apart from Christ or Christ apart from the Spirit. They are fundamentally inseparable. They're distinguishable, but they are inseparable. So there is no sense in which the Spirit is present without Christ being present. Now, Christ in his physical body is, is unique in that regard. I don't think you're saying that, but yeah. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just, the reason I'm saying is you can give the analogy of like when it's alive and it's married. Right. And when that happened. But March 14th, by the way. It's just, <laughs> are you serious? Happy anniversary, man. Good for you. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Um, but when was Christ in us? So that goes back to the Holy Spirit. But, um, was it when we just knew of our condition? Uh, when we were baptized? Right. Uh, when we, said, when we uh, gave a profession of faith? And I said, yes, all of them. I just didn't know what you guys had to 
I would answer the same way. Ultimately, the moment of faith is what I would say. Did you guys have pie at your wedding? Please tell me you had pie Absolutely. at your wedding. Absolutely. Good for you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. At the moment of faith is how I would answer it. 314. With <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> um, I, I think my only contribution to that is it's not a caution because you you're foolish. It's a caution because it can take us off track. And that is uh, if the question, and I know you're not asking it in this way, we have to be really careful that we don't ever look for a moment that we get God contained. Hmm. Like when did I have the Holy Spirit by the head and couldn't get away? No, it's he awesome is picture. always guiding us. We never contain him. And I don't mean he's not in us. Don't misunderstand. What I mean is we don't possess him in such a way that now we're in control of it. So when, you, when I hear the question, whoever posed it, when I hear the question coming in, I'm like, there have been moments while I was still walking in sin, the Holy Spirit was right in my heart, convicting me and bringing me to shame and repentance and all of those good things. And there's, there's elements of God being with me all the time. When was I filled with the Holy Spirit and brought in and justified? goes back to what Michael said. It's that moment of faith, and it grows, and you develop in it. And I want to quote my friend Michael. Anytime we come up with an analogy, uh, we're this close to being correct and 10,000 miles away from being accurate. Ooh, I didn't say that. That's awesome. <laughs> That's good. He led me to believe that. That's good. So I, I don't want to be evasive. We don't want to be lawyers up here. These are really good questions about theology that people have been banging about for 2,000 years. And I will say, you know, I, you know, my own, my own take on it is, you know, just like you said, that there's not necessarily um, formulas to these things. And just like you were saying, like, at what point Mason and I were married, I will say that it seems to be a general, like baptism, I do think generally yes, seems to be the event yeah. of, of when that happens, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But to say that that's the rule is clearly not true, even from the book of Acts, right? We have people who receive the Spirit before they received water baptism and when they received water baptism. And so I think that's kind of what you're saying is let's not put a formula on it, but certainly it does seem like the New Testament teaches that there is a union that happens in the event of our baptism that where that almost as if that is the wedding um, ceremony uh, in in some ways. Romans 6, 1 through 11 is a key passage of scripture if you want to just hold that in. Why we believe that baptism is part of the process of salvation when you receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. So Romans 6 would be a justification for that position. Yes, ma'am. Do you or do other people, I know I did, have an experience that maybe some others didn't have? But when I was only 9 or 10, I was baptized. And when I come up out of that water, I had an experience. Something went over me I couldn't describe. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe... I know what that was. I know in my heart what that was. And uh, he's always been there, even though I've screwed up many times, Mm -hmm. okay? But if somebody else just has faith, good, hard faith, maybe they didn't have an experience. I wonder, does everyone individually have some sort of experience with the Holy Spirit? Uh, No. God meets us all in his own individual way based on who we are and how he gets our attention. Even biblically, we can go through every story. You and I could walk to the Old Testament. Every engagement with God had a uniqueness to it based on what God desired from that person and how they responded. So blessings on you for having that. And those who've had it have been great. And others who haven't had it, for some reason, God met them in a different way. But I don't deny that people have those. Carolyn, you and I could talk in the hallway of some things I've seen in other parts of the world that... I don't talk about here in the States because people wouldn't believe it and I'm not going to waste time on it. 
I saw what I saw in the presence of God working. Some pretty amazing things. Yeah, he's pretty big. <laughs> and he does what he needs to do in a way that he met you in that. I think those are legitimate and reasonable, but they're not necessary for everybody. And I'll say, like, I was baptized as a kid. Um, I, was, I think I was nine, and I don't remember anything like that. However, I can tell you, like, several experiences throughout my life where I would say the Spirit mm-hmm. showed up in such a, a huge way that it drastically changed fundamentally who I am, you know? And so I don't even think that that's necessarily something that you just experience once. Yeah. I hope that you, you know, experience that multiple times throughout your life in ways that continues to shape and change who you are, you know? And the absence of that, the absence of those experiences can be a gift from God too, because both are designed to strengthen the same faith. Yeah, And sometimes true. we think we know which one we need, either at the moment of yeah. conversion or baptism or later on, and he's going, I, I know what you need. Never what? Um, out of my body? It's an experience. That's why I'm saying that women are very emotional. We're supposed to be. I make that. But, I mean, you talk about praying before that baby comes. There isn't a lady that doesn't. Carolyn, I once heard a comedian say, Uh every man could have a baby. No man would have two. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's good. Um, well, Mark, for you, um, I, obviously this, this class has looked at the Bible and specifically some of the major theological topics that it has addressed you know, throughout it. What would, be a, what would you recommend for a new Christian to study? Like what book would you point them to to start with um, that they should? So about a year and a half ago, we formed a teaching team and consultation with the elders. Who would be preaching on stage? and How would we do that? How many times would I need to preach? How many times can I let these guys preach? And one of the discussions we had was, where would you send someone to the Gospels? All right, so a long road to get to the answer. Uh, it was funny, we would all disagree. I think Drake said John. Um, I said Luke. And Michael went, Luke? Interesting. Like, <laughs> I almost just did that. <laughs> That's funny. So if you're asking me, uh, Mark, uh, I connect with Luke's Gospel because I wanted to be a sports writer growing up. Luke went out and got the research. He told the stories from eyewitnesses. He grabbed details that are unique to Luke. I'm fascinated by that. So if someone is wired like me, and they want to know more about Jesus, I would send them to Luke. That doesn't mean John or Matthew or Mark are insufficient. John jumps in in the middle of Jesus' story with not a lot of detail of his ministry and more of those final weeks where he's presenting himself as Messiah. Matthew, as we're discovering on Sunday mornings, if you're with us, is very detailed about king and kingdom. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then Mark is very, very quick. Mm -hmm. Mark's the shortest of them. He's making points really rapidly. He's always moving the story, propelling it toward the cross. Because of that, I like Luke because I think you get a taste of who Jesus is interacting with people and what took place. Now, if you come to me and say, I want to... I know who Jesus is. I want to learn more about the Christian faith. And these guys know what my answer is going to be. I spend, spend as much time in Ephesians as you want to. Yeah. Just bathe deeply in that. Ephesians and Colossians are sister stories. Okay? You may resonate with one more than the other. I resonate a lot with Ephesians. And I think it tells you who Jesus is, the first three chapters. And then the last three chapters tell you how to live in that reality. Eugene Peterson calls it practicing resurrection. And so I'm highly motivated by that. So if someone comes to me, and they do, where should I start? Get to know Jesus and then figure out how you follow Jesus. Colossians and Ephesians would be a great place to start. I'll also give you the negative to that. Do not start in Revelation. 
if you don't know who Jesus is and the principles of his church, it becomes a nightmare. It doesn't mean you're unintelligent. But you're going to be looking for that, that book to tell you things it's not intending to tell you. And that's why every Holiday Inn has a big seminar in it where someone comes in on a weekend and tells you every, all the hidden secrets of Revelation. And it's like, no, it's about Jesus. So get those things figured out. So I hope that's the core of the question uh, that was asked. Um, that's good. And I think that is an easy transition into this question. In light of the Bible, obviously there are different books that other people accept um, as canonical, and then obviously just that we see as historical documents. Um, so the question that we got is, is there any utility in the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, and are there certain books that stand out within them as especially helpful? So Michael, I'll let you answer That's that. me? Okay. Yeah. Um, I can be pretty brief on this. So some of these words are going to sound like really weird words to, to probably a lot of you. Apocrypha is a description of some books that are in some Bibles. So if you have, um, if you grew up Roman Catholic, then you probably have, you had a Bible growing up that had the Apocrypha in it. It's a number of writings, mostly from the time period in between the Old and New Testament, that certain segments of Christians would think need to be in the scriptures. Um, really, the Reformation ha had a lot of conversations about a lot of things about 500 years ago, a movement in the church that was really kind of saying that the church had become systematized in some ways that weren't in, in accord with Scripture. They fought about this a lot. And one of those um, reformers is a man whose name you may have heard, Martin Luther. And he used to say, and this is what I would say, that these apocryphal books are helpful for understanding the time of Jesus but they're not scripture, and so they shouldn't be regarded as authoritative. So are they, are they beneficial? I can't remember the exact wording of the question. Absolutely, like I'd rather you read the Bible more than the Apocrypha, but by all means, especially if you're into history, read the Apocrypha. I get some benefit from these things. Uh, if you have Jewish family or friends, or if you're Jewish yourself, and most of us know what Hanukkah is, that whole thing is a festival that celebrates the Maccabean family who were really important figures in the time in between the Old and New Testaments. And understanding them really does help you understand Jesus. So no question. The pseudepigrapha is another set of Jewish writings. Pseudepigrapha is just a fancy word that means like it's written under a false name, but not in an attempt to deceive, just in a way to honor a person. So like the Psalms of Solomon. Nobody thinks Solomon wrote them. They're just a collection of Psalms that are written in Solomon's honor. They're like also helpful, but less so. Like you gotta be nerding out pretty hard to jump into the pseudepigrapha. I don't, I don't remember the last time I cracked the pseudepigrapha just for some even heavy reading. But still, I put in that category of not scriptural, but helpful for digging deep into the history. Yeah, that's good. Um, would you say that there's any of those that would, are especially helpful that stand out to like, that, like if somebody wanted to look into just one to see some of the history of the Jewish people in the yeah. 400 years of silence. Like what would be, a, a, yeah, if a you wanted to point. jump into one of like a couple of places, uh, first and second Maccabees would be the place where I would start. And then there's a book called the wisdom of Solomon, which is um, it's not Psalms, but it's, it's kind of like a mix between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes a little bit, but you'll actually recognize a lot from the wisdom of Solomon because the apostle Paul definitely had a copy of that book. And some of the things he says in Romans will actually remind you of some of the things he read in Wisdom of Solomon. So again, very helpful, but, but not authoritative. That's where I begin. Cool. All right. All right. Well, this is another one for you, Michael. Um, so within Scripture, um, there's a point in Exodus where Exodus 12, 12, somebody wrote, somebody mm -hmm. asked this question. It says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Mm -hmm. I am the Lord. This is, um, this is Yahweh speaking. So... The, their question is, is God saying there are other gods? Yeah. So 
again, my philosophy on all these is to try to be brief. I probably fail more often than I'd like to admit, but know that we could unpack a lot of them in great depth. So on this one, I'll be fairly brief about how, what I think reality looks like, how the language of scripture maps onto that, and then I'll suggest a resource that may be beneficial. I think that the scriptures consistently teach that there is only one capital G, God, the creator of all things who stands outside of time and space and is fundamentally other than anything else. The most common word used to describe God in the Old Testament or both Testaments is holy because he's different. However, the Bible also describes our universe as containing spiritual beings, non-physical personal beings of various kinds. Sometimes we use the words angels and demons to describe these things. That's actually only two of many scriptural terms that are used to describe these you know, quasi-personal, non-physical, real things. The Old Testament sometimes uses the phrase Elohim to describe angels or these other creatures or characters or whatever you want to call them. Elohim is also the Hebrew word for God. It's a strange thing because, for one, it's a plural term, but also because why would you use the same term for God that you use for these other creatures? And the answer is the context determines which one you mean. That's just how human languages work. Um, I didn't think of an example ahead of time in the English language of words that we use in fundamentally different ways. Okay, I'll give you an example. My son is very into Percy Jackson. You guys, you guys have Percy Jackson people in your life? Um, and so it's these stories that are set within this uh, mythical world where the Greek gods and goddesses are, um, are up in play or whatever. And so he's always talking about gods and goddesses. I don't correct him every time because he knows that he's using that language, almost lowercase g style. Not, and those things aren't even real, but it's like he understands that this is a different order of being, even within the story, they make that distinction. So that was probably less helpful than, than not. But I think to answer the question in one sentence, when the Old Testament does that, it's describing spiritual beings who are not equal to God, but it's using that term to describe them. I told you I'd give you a book or a name. There's a guy named Michael Heiser, uh, H-E-I-S-E-R, um, I don't necessarily follow all of his teachings, but I found them to be a really interesting voice on some of these things. You read any of his stuff? Yeah. He has written quite a bit about um, what he calls the supernatural worldview of the Bible, and he goes into great detail on all these various um, texts and whatnot. He has a book. It's called The Unseen Realm. That's the thing. Supernatural is the thinner version of that. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And both of those are, um, are, are packed with stuff. And like, I think the only thing I would say going into those books is that you just have to keep in mind is that he takes a very historical approach. Mm -hmm. So he's not trying to look at how the Old Testament might um, like be pointing towards the new. He's looking at just how the how Jewish eyes would have been reading it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but it has some really, really good stuff. Thought provoking. Yeah. Yeah. You won't agree with all of it, but you'll definitely be made to think it'll be good. Yeah. Um, all right, Mark. So uh, obviously the, the Jewish people were who Jesus initially came for um, to, to really like help them see the fulfillment of all the, the promises from the Old Testament. Um, and at many times he speaks to the crowds in parables. So why not explain them so everyone could understand it? At times, in Matthew 13, you know, it says, that he didn't explain some of these things and he quotes from Isaiah, I think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why does he keep these things hidden? Why not explain them so everyone can, can understand? Okay, so my research on that, he's using a passage where Isaiah, speaking God's words, says, I want you to go and cover, I'm going to paraphrase, stuff their ears and cover their eyes. 
like God's going to say, I'm playing this massive trick. Now, if you take where Jesus talks about this, it's the parable of the sower and the seeds, which Drake preached on a few weeks ago, if you're with us. Um, so the question is, is the seed contingent upon the soil? Is, is the seed ruined by the soil, or is it just ineffective in its work? Hmm. That's one of the, the ways people look at that parable. In other words, can the seed stop the soil, or can the soil stop the seed from growing? Or is it really about the soil's condition and its reception of the power of the seed and rejecting it? All right. So I've just muddied the water, right? The question is, what is it about the parables that Jesus would tell a story knowing they would not get it? He never told the story that they all didn't get it. But those that had blinded themselves to faith, those that could not see the signs that he gave, were not receiving it. I think that's part and parcel of the sower and the seeds. That they have things in their life that would not allow them to receive it. The power of the gospel was present to all of them, and they rejected it for whatever reason. So I don't believe that what is being taught in Scripture is that Jesus intentionally told a story nobody would get, because every time he told a parable, there was a response by the audience toward it, that some's hearts were hardened, the scales in their eyes, the, the closing of their ears, back to the Holy Spirit question. And this may be controversial for some, and I give these guys license to disagree with me or correct me. But part of my understanding of that is, is that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction upon us, but it does not bring commitment from us. That's what we have to offer back by faith. So are there times? Simpler answer. Has there ever been a moment you've heard a passage of Scripture preached five, six, taught seven, eight times, and it's on the eighth time that you're like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Because your heart and your mind were open to what the Spirit was bringing you and at times you weren't. Here's why I don't believe that God just shut them off from understanding it. Because many, I don't know how many, but many, the Bible says, in the book of Acts were those people that rejected him throughout the Gospels. So the same message of the Messiah following the crucifixion and resurrection became alive to them. What was the difference? The message or the recipient in that stage of life? So did, was Jesus playing coy with some parables? Absolutely. Most of the time, I believe he was being coy and not being direct in the stories he told. He was waiting for the Passover to present himself as the Passover lamb. If he would have come out and said d dead straight everything he was teaching, you'll notice as he gets toward the end, he becomes more direct and blunt in his teaching, less parabolic, less symbolic. Why is he doing that? Because he's approaching the Passover and he's presenting himself as the lamb. If he does that in year one, everything's out of sync and God had not called him to that moment. Does that make sense? Is that too complicated? So Jesus was trusting the timing of God. So sometimes his stories were abstract, but they were never uh, unclear. He had just used word images. And then I learned something in some research I was doing for this Sunday's message. I didn't realize this, and you guys probably know this more than I was aware, that Jesus often used parables that were very common in culture. He just modified them for kingdom principles. Basically, he would tell folk stories, if you will, from the culture and bring them in and give him the kingdom. And they would be like, huh, I never heard it that way before. He was using teaching tools that were very common to the people. Yeah, I, I, don't, I wouldn't disagree with anything you said. The only thing I'd add to it, another way of saying the same thing is, a lot of times in the Gospels, the parables are used in clusters where there's a question of who's in and who's out. And I think it's helpful to think of parables as how you talk to people who are on the outside, but they think they're on the inside. And you tell a story where they can find themselves in a not flattering way. So they walk away going, wait a second, what did that mean? And the purpose of pushing them away in that sense is not meanness, it's to shock them into repentance. So again, think about it as the way you talk to someone who thinks they're on the inside, 
but they're on the outside because you're trying to wake them up to their situation. And that is that language of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 of pushing, I think, pushing them away, closing them off, stuffing their ears. And where we'll be this weekend in Matthew 21, if you want to read through Matthew 21 in advance, Jesus tells three parables in a row, all of them with the same intention. They had to see themselves in those parables. And if they chose not to see themselves in those parables, they proved his parable right. Some of those parables he explained to this father. And that's the inside-outside thing. Is yeah. the, in, the truly insiders, he's saying, all right, let me, let me draw back the curtain for y'all and let y'all know a little bit more about what's going on. And doesn't that give you peace to know that the disciples were in the crowd when <laughs> Jesus was teaching? They're like, he's so good. And then they get him alone, and they're like, what? What are you talking yeah. about? So never feel stupid. Jesus is very accustomed to dealing with people that are slow to the take. All right, well, so, Michael, this one's for you. <clears throat> Do you think, we got a question, this question is, um, is, a, is one people have been asking for a long time now, so I don't know if we're going to solve it in here, but at least for our, for our world, um, why would God have Jacob's family go to Egypt knowing they would become slaves? Okay, I was like, which, where are you going with say. this intro? Why would God have Jacob's family go to Egypt knowing that they would yeah. be slaves? Yeah. Um, so... Part of what makes this, this question really challenging is it's a really specific question that's actually tied to a much broader question, yes. theme. And then that bigger question is, why does God you know, lead and guide us to bad places in ways that don't make any sense? <laughs> and we don't always love, and I'm not gonna try to answer the why do bad things happen to good people because that's maybe a slightly different way of, that's a, that's a really different question. Um, but I think the answer to the my answer to the question is because in the long run, God's knew that what, that's what would be best. So that really is, I think, the heart of the answer, even though it doesn't necessarily satisfy the curiosities. There's a difference between answering a question and satisfying the curiosities. So if the question is, why would God have Jacob's family go to Egypt knowing they would become slaves? The answer is because God knew that in the long end, it would be better for them to go to Egypt and become slaves. And in all of this, we recognize that God is preparing his people and the world for the coming of Jesus. And that preparation has positive and negative aspects, all of which point forward to Jesus. So I can try to drill down further if, you'd want, if you want, but I don't want to get too lost in the weeds. And I do want to make those two statements as the key things. Yeah. God knows what's up in, like, in formal terms. And it's fine to have the curiosities and still wonder about them, but that doesn't mean you, actually, you don't have the answer to the question. Yeah. And I do think in some ways, you know, we're, we see how useful um, their, their time in Egypt is when they actually begin to procreate and increase in number and by doing so are actually fulfilling part of the covenant promise, right? Like some of the covenant promises that Jacob, Isaac, Abraham received was that they were going to grow in number. They were going to become as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the, on the shore, you know? And so the point... Um, of them being able to go there, I think in some ways is the great like bounty that they were often or ultimately able to receive and experience and enjoy because God was blessing that process and had put Joseph in that position in leadership specifically, I think, in, to fulfill part of that covenant promise, knowing that he was always going to lead them out in a way. In fact, I think you even see some of that language in Romans uh, when he starts talking about Pharaoh being used for the purpose of his glory. Like there's two, there's so many things. God, God ne 
I would say, I don't want to say never, but rarely, I think, ever does one thing for one purpose, right? It's good. Everything is working together for his good. Um, so I guess that's the one purpose, but the, that good actually is showing itself in many different facets. Well, historically speaking, the other option was to starve, you know, like it was a famine that led them there. Right. So that might be a factor as well. But I, I think, love the covenantal answer you're giving is rich. Man. And Jacob is the perfect example of whoever coordinated this question. They starve if they don't go to Egypt. But there'd be no question about that. And I think we have to remember, this is just opening the lid and then slamming it shut real quick. <laughs> Suffering is not unjust for God to ask of us. So part of our call is to suffer for a greater kingdom, knowing that that's not the end of our story. So did Jacob get a bad hand? Jacob was a bad man. Let's not, he's not a superhero at any level. He's, he's kind of a jerk through a majority of the scripture, yet God still worked in his life. But look at how he preserved his people. And they suffered to be preserved. There were generations that never saw freedom. Right? Does that make God a bad God? No, God had a purpose and he delivered his ultimate promise and those who place their faith in him, every church is going to be wiped away. We're not going to have any regrets for the suffering we go through for the kingdom. It's hard for us in America, I think. Hard for me to think that suffering is ever called for. Yet God owes Jesus a big apology if that's true. So the part of it is seeing the blessing as well as the ask of us. And our faith is in a God who can deliver and resurrect even our suffering. So that's, so that's a that's good. <laughs> big theological mountain there. But we have to remind ourselves that suffering for the kingdom will be worth it. We'll have no regrets. But do you answer, ask the question the right way? God knew ahead of time what was going to happen. He knows what's going to happen even in your life tomorrow. But he didn't script it to happen. But he just knew it was going to happen. Okay. So he knew what was going to happen in Egypt, but he didn't force those things to happen to do it because he knew ahead of time that was going to happen. It didn't get away from him. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, does God allow it and God cause? You know, there's, I wrestle this all the time in my mind. You know what I mean? You what with it? Do what? You wrestle it? <laughs> <laughs> but just knowing he knows what's going to happen two weeks from now in your life. But is he changing things around so this will happen over here? Well, is he moving you around so? <laughs> yeah, we can go there. You get. Yeah, I love yeah. this question, Dad. You're getting into deep theological stuff, and I don't think we should necessarily go all the way down the rabbit hole. But it raises the question of God's relationship to time, which I actually think is the most complex theological question. It's even more complex than the Trinity. The short answer is to think about God's relationship to time as parallel to God's relationship to space. Meaning it's not that he's here or there, it's that here and there don't apply to him because he, is tra he transcends that particular distinction. And the same may be true of now and then. It doesn't just mean that God is outside of time, but it means that God is beyond it in such a way that he can be active within it and yet stand over all of it. Elijah and I talk about this all the time. We it's, argue about it. We argue about it, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> so good question. Um, Michael, this one's for you. Can you lose your faith? Oh, I forgot this one. <laughs> um, can lose you your lose faith? your faith? That is a really that is a really complex theological question. And again, I don't mind I don't mind starting with an answer. I think yes. I think that um, there are Hebrews six is a key text here. Um, if you're going to go to Hebrews six to defend a yes, then you need to be able to explain the whole thing. That's something we've talked about as well. It's impossible those who have fallen away to be restored, um, assumes they can fall away. And I do think that passage is talking about a Christian no longer being a Christian. I think that the warning texts in the New Testament about how you have to persevere in order to receive the gift 
are, are not just hypothetical, but legitimate warnings. Um, and those assume that a person can have faith and then fall away from faith. I would say though, pastorally, it's probably not as easy as you think. And if a person is, you know, sort of concerned with whether they've gone too far, they probably still have some semblance of faith. And that's not necessarily just to their credit. That's to the credit of God who holds on to his people very tightly. Um, if you answer like I do on this and say, yes, a person can lose their faith, then there are some statements Jesus made in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10 that you need to wrestle with because he says, I will lose none of those the Father has given me and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And so those texts sit in tension with my answer. I want to acknowledge that. I have no problem acknowledging that. And again, saying this is a complex question. Um, I do think that those texts are saying, you know, the enemy can't come and get somebody out of my hand, nor will I turn my hand over and drop them. But I just don't think Jesus is actually talking about um, persons who themselves are, are trying to will their way away from him. So I hope I've not said too many this and that, um, but I do want to, I don't want to make it seem like this is a simple question because it might feel like that, but then you have a friend who disagrees and you might think they're dumb because they don't have your simple answer. Well, they're probably not dumb or bad. They're just maybe looking at different texts than you are at the time and trying to figure out how to rest them, wrestle them all together. I'm not in charge, so if he wants to I was pull, you say, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I just have a question for Reconcile John and then that verse from Revelation, uh, two it sits on. Uh, I'll take a candlestick out of this place. Yeah. Well, they had to be in the first place, so that meant that you ended, but he's taking it out. Yeah. Right. He's taking it out. So does that mean like a lack of faith, a lack of. Um, I'll just do that. Remember, they're four from where you are. Through the first works and repent. Also, quickly remove your candlestick out of its place, except you repent. Yeah, and I want to. Um, I want. I always want to take the the, the um, imagery of Revelation seriously, but all, but not but not literally, unless it intends to be taken literally. We know we're not talking about a literal candlestick. We're talking, as you know, a church. And so, what does it mean to threaten to remove the candlestick? I think Jesus is essentially threatening the existence of that church as such. I, don't, I wouldn't take him in that particular case to be threatening expulsion of individuals from the family of God. So I don't know that it maps directly onto this question, that particular verse. Yeah, good question, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, well, um, Mark, this one came in as well, so I'll, I'll throw it to you. <clears throat> Obviously, we're saved by faith. Um, but how do faith, how, how should we understand our faith and works? Like what, at what point, at what level do works come in okay. in light of those things? I'm trying to think of the way Dr. Cottrell taught me. <laughs> faith, faith without works is not faith. Works without faith is not faith. Faith that works is what the Bible teaches. When we make them polar opposites, we don't marry them together. We've misunderstood. Paul and James are not in disagreement. No, they're not. But they're also pitted against one another. So if you don't know the argument, be grateful. <laughs> a lot of theologians have written a lot of pages on trying to say, well, James had it wrong and Paul had it wrong. I think, I think the Holy Spirit did a pretty good job of knitting the Scripture together consistently. Mm -hmm. Faith works. 
That's a quirky little bumper sticker we preachers say. But it's the simplest way to remember it. If you have faith in Jesus, obedience is not an option for you. It is your desire. It is your passion. It is the bread you eat and the water you drink, the living water. And you're not proving anything to him. You're just responding to him. Faith is a loving response to a God you trust. And so the works that he calls you to do, uh, as, as we jokingly say on stage to make it simple, uh, you don't have to do this. You get to do this. And if it ever goes from getting to do it to having to do it, you need to readjust who you, who's asked of you. What has he earned from you for his goodness, his faithfulness? And so faith requires that we believe Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. That is not just a baptismal statement. That is a life statement. And if that is true, there is no request, no matter how hard, including the suffering that comes with it, that we would not give to him if that is true. So, uh, like I said, that is way oversimplified, but... If we just keep in mind that faith is what saves us, and in that salvation comes a life of giving back to God, not to pay him back, but to honor him, to praise him, to serve him. So, you know, think about Jesus on the night he's betrayed. What was his action? It wasn't giving them warning signs. It was washing their feet and demonstrating to them that he loved them in spite of the fact that that night they would walk away. His faithfulness was demonstrated. And I think our faithfulness can be demonstrated. Now, the next question is, on a ledger sheet, how many boxes do I have to check before it's legitimized? I have no clue. Love compels you to to trust and obey. And so when you get struggling, when I get struggling with obeying Jesus, it always comes back to the issue of loving me more than loving him. And that's a whole attitude adjustment and an action adjustment as well. Well, I think going back to, you know, what we talked about, even in regards to salvation, right? Like salvation is not a get out of jail free card. Mm -hmm. It is a total renovation from death to life. Like that's what salvation accomplishes. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is not just that I get to go to heaven someday, but that heaven is breaking into me. Like I am being changed. Therefore, faith will produce a life that is being changed. That is just a simple fact of the matter. And the, the speed at which that happens is different for every single person. But Philippians says that it will and that God will continue to change that over time. And that ultimately faith, you know, is going to produce like the fruit of the spirit. Those things are growing like we are living trees and the, we are producing fruit through the spirit in us. And so, you know, if our faith isn't producing something, then we should ask whether we really believe in what Christ has accomplished for us. Uh, but usually, you know, I, I'll just give you a story. So I was, I was pastoring a guy for a long time now. He has a lot of, he had a lot of issues, you know, uh, growing up that he I just- I told you not to tell people my story. <laughs> he just, he grew up in a broken home. He, you know, like he had a lot of obstacles to overcome. And, um, and I was actually meeting with his stepson and, you know, I had meeting, been meeting with him for, for a while now, a couple of years, but I was meeting with stepson and he's like, he's like, if Christianity is true, why is like my, my stepdad the way that he is, you know? And I was like, well, do you think in the last couple of years that he's the same guy that he was 10 years ago? And he said, well, no. And I was like, do you think he's the same guy seven years ago? And do you think he's, he's gotten better? Like, do you think that God has transformed his life over the course of five years? And he said, yeah, I guess I can see that how he has changed. And I was like, that's the point of Christianity. Like, not that we are perfect because of what Jesus has done, but God is actually making us into something new. He's making us in, like live again. 
um, and be with the, the author of life again. And so that to me is a, a really emphatic part of this question is, you know, if faith isn't producing something, it's, it's because the, the person we have faith in, uh, or we don't really have faith in the author of life, which is in us producing it, right? So, um, yeah. Cool. And that, some of you don't know Ricky, his story and stuff, but he'll tell you that people recognize him now in the last three and a half years where his walk's at. What's, what's the difference about me now than what we were before? Mm-hmm. And it's just, just a lot change. It's a role. He used the word or about him and stuff, but yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different person. Yeah. 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 People recognize him. Right. Few of us will have Damascus Road experiences where we are totally changed overnight like Paul was, but all of us will have change in our life when we come to a saving faith in Christ uh, because it, that just won't leave you the same. Um, all right, so uh, this question is about the church. Uh, Michael, for you, I'll throw this one to you. What can a woman do in the church today? Uh, what, what, like Obviously, there's different debates about different texts that speak about Men and women, their different responsibilities. How would you answer that question? What can a woman do in the church today? I don't think we have time. <laughs> no, this is a really good and important question. And, you know, the danger is this is something I've been thinking about a decent bit and kind of doing a fresh set of study on. And that's only dangerous because of my promise to be brief. So I will attempt to be brief. Um, and I, that means that I'm leaving a lot of unanswered questions, which you guys are free to, answer, to ask follow-ups. I also won't um, take the time, which is valuable, to lay out all of the different ways of thinking about it than my own. Um, In this particular case, my convictions fall somewhere in between what are currently two extremes, even among those who uh, believe in the scriptures. That doesn't make me right, um, but that is kind of the facts of where I currently fall. So I think we need to make a distinction when it comes to what can any group or any person do within the church. Um, In that do can mean like function or task on the one hand, And it can also mean like role or position on the other hand. And um, sometimes those uh, overlap, sometimes they don't overlap, but in the the task function sense of like an activity, whether it be, uh, you know, changing a diaper or doing a craft or making coffee or teaching a Bible lesson or preaching the gospel, like anything in a sense is part of the answer. So long as we understand the mission of the church to encompass all that God's people are doing when they're gathered and when they're scattered. However, I think this question is also asking about the role or position. And this is part of a larger theological framework that, um, that I hold and that we hold, even though we may have some differences in terms of how we tease out the details, where God created male and fe- humanity, male and female, together to reflect his image in ways that are cooperative. It's a partnership of equals who are equal in dignity, value um, their place before God, but have distinctions in role. I do believe that the Bible consistently teaches Old and New Testament, a pattern of male headship. I don't think that means that males are in charge or that males wear the pants. Those, those metaphors and descriptions often actually answer the question by framing it in a way that is very different from how the Bible frames up the nature of leadership as such. So understanding that the Bible has its own convictions about the way leadership should work and understanding that we are talking about two equals, I do think that and there's a sense in which men are called to lead and women are called to lead alongside men. And that's the clearest language I know how to use to describe what we're talking about. Because we're both called to rule on behalf of God. The command to rule is given to male and female. 
And yet in the, in the, in the Genesis account, there are consistent ways in which there is a uniqueness to the male's role. He's created first. He's given the task. She's created to come alongside him fulfilling that task. They pair together perfectly, as we well know, in order to make more human beings. And so I think that this is played out, especially in terms of the roles of men and women in church and home. So with respect to the church question, here is my now short answer to what I would imagine the person is asking. I think that God has reserved the role of elder in the church for males. I think that elders are the fathers of the church. I think that what the Bible calls deacons are actually what we call ministers. And you actually serve in a church where women do a lot, a lot more than in some of the churches that some of you may have grown up in, you know? And I'm talking about, like, you think about the fact that this last Sunday, uh, this last weekend, my wife got up and she, she, she oversaw communion. She literally preached the gospel in the context of a gathered worship. You know what I'm saying? And so this is a deacon. She doesn't work here, but this is, she's a volunteer deacon in that particular context to use the biblical language. The eldership role is, there are some things elders do that no one else does. But for the most part, elders do what others do just in a different way. So elders make decisions. Well, so do ministers, so do volunteers. If you lead a small group, you make decisions that affect the life of the church, but the elders do it in a different way or to a different degree. Similarly with teaching, preaching, leading, directing, those sorts of things. So I'll leave open some of the questions that emerge from there, but that's my understanding of it. I can go in more detail if you want. I mean, I don't no, know if question. this is the necessary place to talk about <laughs> certain specifics, so. <laughs> Only if people ask the question, I guess. Well, you so. guys can ask whatever you want. So if you're wondering, like, well, what about this? Now's your shot, I guess. Um, anybody, anybody, anybody? Okay, all right. Um, well, I know in light of that, I know, Mark, you have been studying um, a lot about this question in terms of just post-Christianity, the culture of post-Christianity. Uh, what do you expect for the future of Christianity in America? What does that look like uh, if in your crystal ball? <laughs> well, I hope after 13 years here, you don't think I'm chicken little. Uh, we've chosen not to preach the front page of the Joplin Globe. We're not going to overreact to every trend in society. Uh, I'm looking at the honeys right there. We have children going to be entering college in the next year. And I've had a lot of conversations with my 17-year-old son about how I got a hall pass for being a Christian when I was in high school. I was a good kid. I didn't do too many bad things. Broke a law or two. But for the most part, I was a kid that people could trust. I skated through high school because teachers thought I was a good boy. I went to church. They knew I went to church. My coaches would ask me to pray before games and they really wanted to win, so I had it all going. <laughs> uh, and that's, those are true stories. Um, I don't want to scare my 17-year-old, but I want to break the naivete off of him. And we've had a lot of conversations recently. And some, I'm in my, on my third book reading what the post-Christian world looked like in Europe. It's here. Okay, don't get scared. Get real. This is going to shake a lot of people away from American faith into, into gospel faith. So what's going to happen is there's no more credit for being a believer. You're kind of an idiot. Or you're misogynistic. Back to what Michael was addressing. Or you're not really understanding culture. Or this church is doing it, why doesn't your church do it? That is, that is the first indicators. When the foundational pillars of what is right and wrong are now up for debate, and every one of us gets to individually choose what's right or wrong, we are not facing a future post-Christian society. The credit we all got for being believers is gone. Which is, and I, I'm going to say this honestly, game on. This is when the church grew. Read the book of Acts. 
They were not celebrated. They were not welcomed. They were ostracized. They were demeaned. And God blew up the world with those churches. And I think America's in for a revival that's going to look, it's going to be smaller in size than the American church, I believe. A lot of people are going to drop out because they don't get cachet anymore for going to church. Their business isn't getting extra business because they're a church person. Uh, you're living in the buckle of the Bible belt. I've said this story a hundred times. I'm going to keep saying it. In Michigan, you know, I, I, people think I grew up in Michigan. I did not. I was doing missionary duty there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so when I went to Michigan, you had to ask people if they went to church. When I'd have conversations in, in society, did you go to church? I moved to Missouri. You all go to church. The question is not, do you go to church? It's what church you go to. The problem is that has been neutralized so much that you don't know if they really trust Jesus or if it's just a cultural thing to go to church. The church is going to be under attack. And the, the big progression right now is, I don't know if it'll be true or not, the megachurch is the greatest at risk. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people like to come here because they have contacts, business contacts. They can slip in and slip out. It's got the coffee. It's got all of this. We're here to make disciples, not draw crowds. And I think churches are going to face a big decrease in those who attend on Sundays. And we're going to get real. But I have a 17-year-old going to college. You're not going to get credit for being a believer. You're going to actually have to believe on your own. You're going to have to stand strong on your own convictions. So we're having a lot of conversations about some of the questions that came in. I want him to read the Bible with an eye toward being a disciple and not to get facts. So I'm not trying to scare anybody. Please don't. My passion about it is I'm seeing it happening even in, in culture today. When people who have attended church for years are starting to question, why, why are we doing this and not this? Because culture says this is okay. As a pastor, all right, I'm going to do this to your class. Do it. As a pastor, it's his class. <laughs> it used to be when I met with couples for premarital training and premarital counseling, living together, if they did it, they, were, they never talked about it. Now they're horrified to find out that that's not acceptable in the eyes of God to be sexually intimate before you're married. Now, church, 20 years ago, this wasn't a debated society, was it? We, we hit it. Now it's out front like you're out of time. You used to say to couples when I would counsel them, if you're living together, can one of you move out to keep yourself away from the temptations? Now people look at you and go, eh, I ain't doing that. I'll just go to the justice of the peace and get married. That doesn't mean they're bad people. What's happened? The moorings and pillars that we believe that what is right and wrong in culture are up for grabs. Now, some of you are shaking your heads, and I know what you do for a living. You're seeing it as much as I'm seeing it professionally. Like, wow, the rules have changed. And it's going to be good for the church eventually. It's going to be really hard for, and I, when I say American Christians, please understand what I'm saying. The social Christian, who because you're American, we're all Christian, aren't we? No, we're not. It's all based on faith and following Jesus and committing to the kingdom over the American kingdom. And America's in for a rude shock. And uh, we're seeing it already. You saw it with the pandemic. You saw the responsiveness was what's not best for everybody, what's best for me. And those are what I'm reading are the individual indicators of a post-Christian culture that's not about the collective. It's about the individual. And uh, they're seeing it. They've had it in Europe for 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's across the pond now. And if you look at the major metropolitan areas on both our coasts, you can see it in media and everything else. I sound like the preachers I used to mock. Isn't it funny, man? Oh, if you watch The Simpsons, your kids are going to burn in hell. I was, like, I was a youth minister who watched it with my kids. Okay, so, but I look at it now and I'm thinking, wow, some of the, the warnings. And I, my heart's going out to it because I got a 17-year-old who's going to go to the university somewhere maybe. And he's going to have, you know, smarter people than his dad 
telling him what your dad taught you growing up isn't really true. And I need to get his feet set on what is true so he can find it for himself. Because if he decides to go to state university, I want to send a missionary to state university. I don't want to protect him in a cocoon because he needs to stand up for his own faith. That's how we all get good at this. So those are my, the cautions to the church is we need to take the word seriously. I am very grateful. He doesn't know I'm going to say that. I'm very grateful for what, for what Elijah did this semester by teaching you that there are some big ticket items in the scriptures that we need to get our hearts around. Or the world can take our faith away from us slowly but surely by trends. But when you understand why the Trinity matters, and you understand what salvation, justification, those principles are, then we're actually better off than if we just talk about Bible stories. And, you know, how do I apply them to my heart? Because when the world's lying to you, you need to know what the truth is to stand up to it. That's what a post-Christian world is going to be. Can you stand on your own faith and understand what theology means and why it matters? If we can, we're going to be just fine. God's faithful. But if we're not, we're going to be like those who get picked off by the adversary because we start believing the lies that take us back into the darkness. So, um, Jody, I'll send you them. i got three of them right now. I'm poor. Once I got past 55, I can't remember names now. So I've got the three books in Kindle. I'll send you the titles. Uh-huh. And I would, I would, oh, go ahead. I'm done. I was going to say, I would, I would add to that, like, you know, we kind of talked about this even in terms of what the, what the example of Jesus is sets for us on, in his death and resurrection. What, 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 it, what it is he really accomplished? Things may get bad in the church from a comfort standpoint, but make no mistake, like the gates of hell will not prevail. Like, like you said, it's the, you know, Tertullian, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Like it, at the end of the day, they can take our lives, but even in our death, it will subvert the world. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection does. Our deaths no longer mean as much as the world thinks they do. In fact, they are very bad for the world. And so as much as things might change, uh, the church will remain, the church, the invisible church, those who call Jesus king, in his globe will, will, not re, will not be moved. If anything, the people who were wearing a mask will finally take it off uh, because it's no longer Figuratively. benefiting. <laughs> yes. Figuratively. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Take off the mask and be close <laughs> so Two of the books I was reading doing research on this fascinated me because they said that Joshua's proclamation and taking over from Moses, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, will be the standard by which we all stand strong. Mm-hmm. If my church closes, if I no longer get business because I'm a Christian, if I start to face the persecution that generations across the globe, if you've ever read Gibbons, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, it's not a fun read. You can replace the word Rome with America over and over. The trends are the same historically. Uh, so this is like, it sounds scary, but I'm 100% with Elijah. I want you to hear my heart on this. Uh, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to lose all the benefits from it. And churches may lose tax-exempt status, and, and all of a sudden, you may get persecuted on your way to church. But as for me and my house, we're going to choose to stand on this because we believe it's real. And that's going to strengthen the church, not weaken it. But there will be casualties of people who are walking in a convenient faith. When times got tough and the persecution came, uh, you really find out what you stand for. I don't wish this. I hope I die before it all happens. I'm that much of a coward. <laughs> but I'm looking at the generation. i got a granddaughter now. And I look at her, she's going to grow up in a different world than I did. And I'm not happy about that. So 
my oldest son and I have had quite a few conversations about how to get that little girl ready when we're not here but to remember why, what we stood for when we were. It's a positive message, huh? Pretty <laughs> <laughs> uplifting. Um, well, it's 747, so I want to open it up to you guys. If you have any other questions that just came up, you know, while we're talking about some of this stuff, um, again, don't, don't not ask the question because you feel like you might look silly. That's literally what the church is for. And if, if, if you ever feel that way, like ultimately we're not really accomplishing what we want to want to be. We want to be a place where literally we are sharing the very gifts of God that, and the skills that he's given us together. Um, and so that's what we, we want to be a blessing to you if we can be. Again, we may not have the answer, but um, ultimately we want to continue to help uh, and uh, the revelation of God come to bear on all of us. So um, any questions that you thought of during this? Yeah. Um, is Matt? Me? Yeah. You can call me Matt, but my name is Michael. You made a statement, I think, early on. It was like, you were talking about, yeah, I got this wrong. Like, you're... Just as much, I'm paraphrasing it. If I got this wrong, it's okay. It was, it, you're just in, in getting to heaven. You're talking about heaven's And you're talking about getting to heaven. And you're talking about, it's like, um, you were kind of downplaying yourself. It's like, I'm more like a sinner that's going to be, I'm not, I'm not a perfect person. Sure. Getting to heaven. What is mean? What I meant by that is the reason I will be in the new, in new creation, in heaven, is not because I did enough to get there. Mm-hmm. It will be because I received the gift that was offered to me okay. in faith. And to follow up on that, is that this is my, this, what led to the question is that uh, you talked about this, how can a living God not take care of things on this earth? Well, my question to you is like, how can a loving God let people in heaven who aren't righteous? Um, so. I think I hear the overall question. I'm not sure about the first half of it in terms of what exactly you mean, but I get the setup. That's the gospel. Like the answer is that um, you're, what you're suggesting is, to put it in simple terms, sin needs to be punished in order for justice to be maintained. Not really. It's that I, what I look at is like, I would be very unloving for God to have unrighteousness in Okay, so I think there's a confusion of categories. So the, you're, you're now, very specifically within this question, you're defining love in a way that requires um, a complete refusal of unrighteousness to be in my presence. And I, would, I just wouldn't say, I would say that's not, a, that's not an aspect of any definition of love that I'm aware of. So I think in that sense, um, I've never actually heard this question put in this way before. Usually it's the justice of God that actually is offended by the presence of unrighteousness. I'm not quite sure how being loving actually requires me to keep righteousness or unrighteousness away. Well, it was because of God's love that uh, he sent his son. Yes. Yes. So... Is that, is that the tension? So I don't know if I understand the question. Let me try one more time. Is it importation versus Maybe so. So I think there's two different ways of understanding righteousness. Righteousness has um, a couple of different elements when it comes to you being described as righteous. One aspect is you are, you are declared righteous. You are justified. That is what I would consider to be a status or a position. So you have received the legal status of righteous person. Not because you are inherently 
good, but because the goodness of Christ, the credit of Christ is applied to you. You receive his identity. Now, I also believe that when you receive Christ in faith in this union that we talked about earlier, your heart will be transformed. And the language of righteousness can be, and sometimes in scripture is also used to describe uh, like moral goodness. So that is not something that gets you in, but it is an increasing characteristic of those who actually are justified by faith. Right, so this is where I don't know if I understand what you're actually asking me. So, there's the context. Is that how, how, my question is that I don't think it's loving for God to allow a person to accept Christ in heaven. That's, oh. That's where the other righteousness is. I didn't say that he oh. would. Okay, I think. Okay, yeah, no, I said the opposite. Yeah. Now I understand. <laughs> I still don't understand how it would be an offense against love, though. But that's neither here nor there. I think maybe earlier you heard me saying something that I wasn't intending to say. We got to the bottom of it. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Anything else? Any other questions? Yeah. I have a question just about that there will be no more tears in heaven. I mean, all of us have loved ones or family members that are far from the Lord, they're rejecting the Lord. I mean, is he just going to wipe our memory? How do we make sense of that? I may have used, I may have committed one of the flaws of good hermeneutics, right? How to break down the Bible down what it says. Is to take that passage out of Revelation and apply it to every tear, and you can't do that. I think within the Revelation, the images of the suffering for the, for the kingdom. I don't know, Christine, how if either one of my boys aren't in the eternal kingdom, how I find joy. But God says I will. And I don't think God is going to play tricks. And God doesn't use deceit and lies and cover-ups. So somehow he's going to bring joy even in the midst of loved ones that we assume won't be there. You know, I know your heart well enough. <clears throat> we don't get to decide who gets in and who gets out. And uh, so that is taking a lot of faith for me with an older brother who's away from the Lord right now thinking, how will my mom enjoy heaven without her son. I don't know the answer to that, but I don't want to apply revelations every tear. I think in the context of which John uses that is very specifically to the suffering of the church through the ages. Uh, but, so I may have crossed a line and been poetic instead of accurate. You talk about the road back there, right there. Uh, but back your name can be taken away, you're raised from the land of a black or the other book and stuff. There's two or three I didn't say that. You didn't say it, but it's in it's in Bible. Well, I, I actually oh, wouldn't say, say that. I wouldn't I mean, say that. Was talking about could you lose your faith? Yes. Just don't, does it does that imply that if your name's taken out or erased or? So this is where I actually that's a great question because I think it it it. Remember, I tried to indicate the complexity of the question and the fact that we can take it in a number of directions. That's a metaphor, right? Like, we recognize that God doesn't have, like, a literal, you know, tablet of names that he's erasing. Maybe. I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> Probably. So, whatever that is, it represents the eternal knowledge of God, which includes how the story's going to turn out. So, I don't think God is up there going, well, write that name in, even though I know I'm going to have to erase it in a couple of months. You know what I'm saying? Put it in the I don't pencil. think it's like that. And that's why that actually, if you guys are Baptist or if you have Baptist friends and family, and there's a holding on to the idea of eternal security or the once saved, always saved, there's a way to understand that that I would actually affirm. If they mean by that, that once God regards a person as someone who will be eternally saved, that they will not not be eternally saved. 
because he knows how the story goes. I just think that's a little bit of a different way of looking at it than, than the most natural way to take the question of can a person lose their faith. I think pastorally this question has been asked to me for three decades. And I always want to find out what do they mean by lose? Like you lost your keys? Like you lost your favorite sweatshirt? Or can you walk away from God? Those are two distinct questions. Hmm. And I think a lot of times when people ask me the question is, can I walk away from my faith by my disrespect for God, my disobedience, my not caring about him? And I tend to agree with Michael. I think that God does not keep someone against their will. Yes. I almost said that's a good word. It's actually terrible, but it's a good description. Yeah. <laughs> Renouncing. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a so, strong word. Yeah, you know, I think a lot that's of what times some people have asked me the question as their pastor, like in a small town setting, they're upset. Yeah. You know, can, can I do something so bad that God just writes me off? You know, the love of God is he loved you while you were yet the enemy. He's not going to quit on you. But can you quit on God? That's a different set of questions. Any other questions? Thoughts? Yes. Back to the... Like, I guess I just want to know about the theory on the Jews being in heaven, because I did grow up Baptist, and I feel like I've been taught my whole life, maybe I just took this fit because the Jews were the chosen people, that they would just be in heaven, yeah. like, that God is going to call them to heaven, is that just well, you probably were taught that. And so it's based on, there's a statement in Romans 11 that says, and in this manner, all Israel will be saved. And a lot of people will take that to mean, like literally all ethnic Israelites will somehow be saved. Um, I actually don't think that's the proper way to take it. And I think that Paul has actually prepared us for a distinction that he's making it's like, so Romans 9 through 11 is, a, is one set, is one chunk of scripture. And I think it's all a composite whole. And it's answering the question, how can the gospel be true in a way that's faithful to the Old Testament, given that most Jews don't believe? And so Paul, as a Jew, is essentially walking back through the story of God dealing with his people in a way that is defending the fact that he saved all Jews and Gentiles by grace through faith in Jesus, just like he promised. And so chapter nine is really all about how what God has done in Jesus aligns really pretty well with what God, how God treated the Old Testament Israelites, including the Pharaoh piece. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to save the people. Well, now he's hardened, you know, rebellious Israel so that they would kill Jesus so that he could provide salvation to the Gentiles. And he's saying, why are you mad about it now that it's benefiting others? Same way I treated you. So nine is I'm treating them the same way I treated you. Ten is what I said would happen is happening. Some people among the Jews are believing, some are not. Some Gentiles are believing, some are not. This is precisely what I said was going to go down. So he's quoting prophets to prove it. Then 11 is, here's what's going to happen in the future. And he's expressing his hope that as more and more Gentiles come in, Jews will look at this and say, they're experiencing the blessings that were reserved for us. And they will be made envious in a way. And then that will turn their attention to maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. And they will, his hope is, put their faith in him. And in this manner, all Israel will be saved. One more detail. This is where 9-6 matters. Not all who descend from Israel are Israel. In that one sentence, he's used the word Israel in two different ways. And I think this maps onto what he does toward the end of 11 there, where he says something very similar. When he says, and in this manner, all Israel will be saved, I think he's saying all who belong to the people of God. Sometimes it's described as a spiritual Israel or a theological Israel. I don't love any of the terminology. Um, I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know of a better way to say it, but his point is not all who are ethnically in this line are faithfully or spiritually in the family of faith. Sure. So There are certain topics like this that uh, I know I've preached through Romans three times here. Michael's been with me in two of those. And we get a lot of responses 
very respectful responses like, I think you're wrong on this. Uh, I don't, I know in our conversation, we believe that Paul has defined what Israel is. So when Paul uses his definition of Israel, we have to consistently use that throughout Romans. And I'm not suggesting you would, but the disagreement is, no, 11 says this. He's defined it in 9. He didn't change his definition later. And Michael does a really good job there in that synopsis of saying 11 is saying, if, because he defines what the gospel is in one in chapters 1 and 2 of Romans. Mm-hmm. But friends of mine, dear friends of mine who remain friends of mine, well, every time we teach that here, we'll write back, you're wrong. Yeah. Well, in, yeah. Like for me growing up, or like even now, it's confusing because, you know, we have, through faith, trusted Christ, but they don't ever, and I, it's still confusing to think that he would still, like, why are they still his choking? Like, yes, and because they didn't choose him. And, and I think you are, all, you are always correct to have been confused. Yeah, Yeah, because well, he redefines the word Jew and the word circumcision in chapter two. He redefines children of Abraham in chapter four, and he redefines Israel in nine through eleven. And it's to to reject that is my problem with that reading, which is the reading you're up with is a fairly popular one. So there's a lot of people who disagree with us who study this stuff for a living. But I just think it it actually cancels out a primary thrust of the entirety of the whole first part of the argument. Well, yeah, I just never understood it. Yeah, Yeah. I have a. Right. That's literally what yeah. they teach you when you're Baptist. Unless, too, like, oh, yeah. So, Unless you're Jewish. And then you get in on right. You get a different covenant. Like, you get in because you're born in the right family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I never understood. Doesn't seem to be consistent with other passages. I think that Ephesians 2 and Galatians as well helps bring even more clarity to that, too. So that might be something worth looking at as well um, in general. But ultimately, we have to be in Christ, right? Like, that's where. Our, if, if our union is in Christ, we are a part of the promise of all the covenants. All the covenants are fulfilled in Christ, and therefore being in Christ is where our righteousness comes from, and it's also where we become inheritors of all the promises and the blessings of God. You know. So, um, Any other questions? It's 8 o'clock, so the stream will not get it. So now is your chance. The stream, I think, is off. So if you're we're afraid to ask a question, but I know you've got to pick up kids as well. So if not, yeah, one more. I do have a question. And this topic never even came up to me until I was a late teenager. And my former youth pastor finished it to me. It's where did Jesus go when he died in three days? Mm. And my youth pastor, my former youth pastor, told me he went to hell. Mm-hmm. To, you know, try to preach to the Gentiles and the former Jews that everybody knows. Yeah, I can pass. I can take this one. <laughs> I can take this if you want, or you can. Have you studied this? Yeah, but you can do it. We've debated this. Well, it's certainly not clear. Let me say that. You can say Yeah, so real briefly, the doctrine is sometimes called the harrowing of hell. And I say that because if you Google that, you can actually find decent resources on it, believe it or not. And um, to the extent that you're interested in this, there's a book called by Matthew Emerson called He Descended to the Dead which is actually, I think, a quite fantastic book. I read it only in the last few years, and it really helped me with my understanding of this. Long story short, there are, there's a place in Paul and a place in Peter that talks about how he essentially descended to this and preached to the spirits who were in prison. Some people would take that as you know, the provision of, of, uh, of a, salva- a saving message to them. Um, I do think that Jesus took all you know, deceased saints with him up to the presence of God, you know, in this event of the death and resurrection, but I actually think those texts are saying that he announced victory over all who were in rebellion against him. 
So understanding those texts requires some understanding of the way in which Jews at the time would think about like the, the other world, so to speak, because the, even though it was understood not as a literal place, it was described in very spatial terms with different parts. You're familiar with the parable where Jesus talks about how, you know, the rich man and Lazarus, this rich man is suffering and the Lazarus, the beggar, is at the bosom of Abraham and there's a chasm they can't cross. That, rep- that speaks about the same understanding of the quote-unquote underworld. And so it is a complicated thing. So what, what you're hearing is not false. It just can be understood in a number of different ways. So you guys can duke yeah, it out from there. I've definitely never, like, you know, like, literally just, like, a theoretical. Yeah. yeah. Just if, if the word picture comes up that Jesus was in prison for three days in some form of punishment, that's... Yeah. Yeah. That's where people get weirded out. Yeah. Probably why you got the emotional reaction that there's no way he went to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just a, you know, like I was like, before, I Well, and I've taught my, you guys, some of you guys may hate this, I don't know. I've taught my kids the creed, and so we used to say he descended into hell. And after reading that book, I actually changed it. Now we try to say he descended to the dead, because I don't think that hell is the best way to describe what's going on there. So for what it's worth, that may be an important distinction. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.